Very good morning to you all. Can I just start off by saying I really appreciate and I'm really thankful to our team that lead us in praise each and every week. It's one of the highlights of my week to come in here. And I don't know what you're doing at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning. Perhaps some of you are still in bed and that's okay. But these people are here rehearsing and practising and um, they take it so diligently. And it's just awesome to come and listen to them sing. Because they're not here to perform, they're here to lead us in praise. And um, I trust and hope that you are encouraged by what they do. I'm going to start off this morning by playing a little game. It's not really a game, but anyway. I want us to think about, and if I was to title it, it would be called, What Would You Do? This is a story from three different parts of my life, things that have happened to me. And the first one involves a camera. I used to love photography and I used to, and I've still got my film camera at home with my lenses. But I remember we had a friend at the campsite we worked at and he was in photography as well. And when digital cameras first come out, he tried to persuade me, you've got to change, you've got to go digital, you've got to go digital. Well, he got to me and just to save money on film, I eventually took up his advice. This was the first camera I ever bought. This camera came out in the year 2000. It was one of the first ones, and it was one of the top quality ones at the time. Can you see the megapixels? 3.1. Woohoo! This camera was quite expensive, but Michelle and I and were taking our daughters on an overseas trip, so I got it at duty free. And so it cost me $1,200. It was quite expensive. That was probably about three weeks of a wage while I was at Railway. Anyway, it was great. I took the camera away and I could go click, 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 click as much as I could. Um, the biggest card I had was 32 gigabyte. And so you were really limited on how many photos you could take. But it was really good. But then the trouble up. We came home and we flew into Adelaide and our family were there to meet us. And um, we, our family said, oh, look, tell us about your holiday. And so we went to a cafe in the, in the airport and we had a coffee together. Anyway, once the coffee finished and we said goodbye to our family, I went to my car and I started to pack up and I realised I didn't have my camera. And so I went back to where the cafe was and sadly it was gone. My camera was gone. And so I went and I spoke to the management of the airport and, um, and they had a quick look and got onto staff and it didn't really matter. So they wrote me a letter and everything like that. Now, it wasn't all that bad because we had travel insurance. And so once we got back, I rang up my travel agent and I said what happened and they said, no worries. So I got onto my travel insurance and within a couple of days, I received a cheque in the mail for $1,200. So I felt quite okay. So I banked that check. Problem solved, right? No. A couple of days later, I get a phone call from Adelaide Airport. Mr. Nielsen, is this you? And I said, yes, it is. We have good news. We have found your camera. <laughs> I'd already banked the check. What would you do? What would you do at that point? Now, you may say it's easy. That's $1,200, that's a lot of money. Well, let me give you another scenario. This one is all about cushions. I remember one time Michelle and I were in Broken Hill and I went to Big W just before it was closing because Michelle found some seat cushions that she really liked. 
And anyway, we ran in and, and we bought the cushions and we're in a hurry because it's saying the story's closed and everything like that. And anyway, I got home and like I always do with anything I buy, I checked my docket. And lo and behold, I bought eight cushions, but I was charged for seven. But here's the problem. When I checked my docket, it was 5.30 in the afternoon. Big W and Broken Hill closed at 5 and we were leaving Broken Hill the next morning at 6am to drive back to Adelaide. Big W didn't open to nine. What do you do? I mean, $1,200 is one thing, but it's merely only eight bucks here. Do I really stop and put off going home early for a measly $8? What do you do? Well, let's take money out of it. Let me give you another scenario. I remember another time I was at a car park in a Marion shopping centre. Marion is a huge shopping centre, huge Westfield in, um, in Adelaide. And I went there stupidly on Christmas Eve, right? And I was driving around and around. I think I was driving for about 20 minutes looking for a car park. And finally, I saw a car come out and I thought, yes, Praise the Lord, he's looking after me. I need to start to drive into it and be confronted with this. <laughs> Maybe the Lord wasn't looking after me that day. Anyway, I, um, I, I put my car into reverse. But as I looked down at my gear stick to go into reverse, I happened to notice something that was still sitting on my dashboard from the day before. What was sitting on my dashboard? This. My mum was in the car with me the day before because I took her shopping. This was her card. What do you do? What do you do? Do you know, I'd like to tell you that these were very simple, but these are things I wrestled with. These are the things I really, really wrestled with. What do you do in these situations? Do you know, I've shared these situations with other people who are Christian friends of mine. And what staggers me is so many of them have so many different views. Some people said that that check from the insurance company was God's blessing on Michelle's and my life. It was a way of him giving to us and blessing us because our service to him. Others said, Garth, if you had a parked in that car park or took the eight bucks, you're almost condemned to hell. These are real life situations. But do you know what? Why do they cause so much problems? I'm quite sure if I asked you to raise your hand in what you do, even in this room, we would have differences of opinion. Why? Because it all comes down to this. It all comes down to what we Christians call grace versus law. Let me share with you what I did. Not that I believe God tests you, happy to debate that one, but anyway. Um, but if they're all tests, I think I would pass except for one thing. I rang up the insurance company the day after and told them and I said, I need to give you back $1,200. They thanked me. They thanked me and said no one would ever do that. The funny one was we didn't leave Broken Hill. I said to Michelle, look, we've got to stay. We've got to take the eight bucks back. I went up to the service counter and I explained the situation. I bought eight cushions, charged for seven, and, uh, and she said, oh, no worries. How much were they? I said, $8. That girl walked over to her cash drawer, opened the cash drawer, and came back and gave me $8. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> There's another one. I should have walked out then. But I did. I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, well, you know, we owe you $8. I said, no, love. I said, I owe you $8. She said, well, what on the heck are you doing back here? 
won't surprise you, two years ago, Broken Hill Big W closed down because they weren't financially viable. <laughs> I didn't park in the car park. I passed that test, but I didn't pass the angry test about getting angry and all about me. I thought, this is stupid. So I drove home. <laughs> I didn't find a park. I went back. And you know what my mum said to me? My mum said, oh, I would have come with you. I just would have sat in the car. And I thought, that defeats the purpose of your ticket, mum. Grace versus law. How do we live out our day-to-day lives? So often we will have people say, we are not under the law anymore. We've been set free from the law. We now live a different way. We now have different rules because the old is gone, the new has come. Jesus has died on that cross, as Wes said. We are completely different now. How much confusion is there in our understanding of grace versus law? Yes, we still have the law. The law is still there. But because of what happened on the cross, because of the grace of God, has this happened? Because we now live in the age of grace, does that mean that God has wiped away, destroyed, or the law plays no longer a part in the life of a Christian? When it comes to the law and grace, there is so much confusion. So, as you can see, when it comes to this, we are dumbfounded sometimes. We all live in different ways. We all will do different things. I have Christian friends that would have kept the check and saw it as a blessing of God. I had Christian friends that say, Big W will not miss $8. But they are still under the grace of God and they're no less Christian than what I am by not doing it. And so that's why I want to start a topic on grace or law. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we just pray and come before you. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you for your law. And Father, as we look to this over the next few weeks, I pray that you will guide us, you will encourage us, you will challenge us, and you will make us more rich in our walk with you and our walk with each other. In your son's mighty name I pray. Amen. You know, it's interesting. When you think of the grace of God, most people think of this person, John Newton. He will be remembered as writing one of the greatest hymns about grace throughout history. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I'm free. Do you know he copped some flack for writing that hymn? There were some Christians that challenged him the same way um, that people challenged Paul when he wrote about the grace of God. They said, are you saying that we're now under this grace and the law has no part? Not that he ever put this into him, but this is another quote that he said. He said this, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, said that. No wonder he also said this. Ignorance of the law isn't bliss, it's dangerous. Hopefully my entry will show you that this is still true today. Christians are still confused and uncertain about the role God's laws plays in their lives about many things. Well, to help us today, I want to look at a passage that most people go to or quote or talk about when they look at the law in the life 
of a Christian. Today, I'm looking at the words found from Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Now, you will know these verses are found in what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The structure of the Sermon on the Mount is remarkably beautiful. It begins in Matthew 5, 1 to 12 with the Beatitudes. These give us a penetrating description of the inner character of those who are members of the kingdom of heaven. Next, in verses 13 and 16, the Lord gives two beautiful metaphors of how we as Christians are meant to live, salt and light. All of Jesus' words are about teaching us how to live, the effect and also the effect that we should have on those around us as we live as his believers. In a way, Jesus was saying the life of a believer, you'll have and display an inner righteousness, not on basing it on the law or following rules. It will be calm from following him. During his sermon, it seemed that Jesus evidently sensed that some of his listeners thought that he was advocating an overthrow of the Old Testament law. Maybe he was chucking out the old law and said it's no longer viable, it's no longer needed. He sensed that. So he gave his unforgettable disclaimer, which is set down for all time for us to read, to learn from and understand in relationship to his father's law. In this passage in Matthew, Jesus explains to us the place the law should have in the life of every Christian. Verses 17 to 18 focus on the radical righteousness of Christ and the law, while verses 19 and 20 focus on the radical righteousness of the Christian life and law. These are his words. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, unto heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letters, not the least stroke of a pen, or by any means will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices, teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wow, wow and wow. I'll say it backwards. Wow. Here we see Jesus talking about the law and the importance of it. And the first thing he mentions is this, the importance of the law and the prophets. What exactly does he mean? If you were a listener in his day when he said the law and the prophets, how would you understand his wording? Well, this is how you would understand his wording. You see, the law in this day consisted of the first five books of our Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament. In these books, we found a few important things. In the law, we found the initial relationship between God and creation, God and nature, God and his dealing. The kind of life we also see in the law, we see the life that he desired for his people to live. We see the total will of God for humanity in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so when you take the law as a whole, 
In a nutshell, the law they saw, it was given to teach people about the concept of sin and how it separates us from a holy God. That's how they saw the law. When he says about the law, they would instantly think of the first five books of the Bible. Then he says the prophets. Well, the prophets consisted of the books in the Old Testament. We have terms like history books, wisdom books, minor and major prophets. These books, the prophets were viewed as a commentary on the law. So these books, the prophets would talk about what the law actually stated. The prophets were viewed as an explanation of how to live out the life God desired for his people to live within the law. Confusing? Maybe. But that's the way it was. The law taught people what it was to follow Christ. The law gave people God's rules. The law gave people what it meant to live for him. And then to help people understand it, we had the prophets and other books of the Old Testament that expanded it even more. So you can see when you put the law and prophets together, you get the whole Old Testament. Most interpreters believe it was the whole Old Testament that Jesus refers to in the Sermon on the Mount when he says the law and the prophets. And so in light of that biblical information, the question still remains. He says he fulfills the law and the prophets. How does he do that? What does he mean? What does it mean to fulfill? Does that mean he's fulfilled it and they're now irrelevant? They're now gone? No. The word fulfill in the English dictionary means to carry out something promised, to do something required, to satisfy a condition or to complete something. Jesus did all these things and more when he came to earth 2,000 years ago. But let me give you three. I'll tell you three ways I think that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Firstly, he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning his coming. Many of the details in Jesus' life were prophesied hundreds of years before he was born. In fact, there are several hundred prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. Prophecies that talk about his birth, life, death and resurrection. Now you may say, yep, Jesus has fulfilled these prophecies. Big deal. Well, you know what? This used to kind of wash over me as well until a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, I read something that brought home how big of a deal this was. Not that I'm into science and not that um, I've followed science much, but I read an article about this man. This man. Who is he? This man's name is Professor Peter Stoner. Does anyone know where I'm heading here? Anyone read this article? Peter Stoner was a Christian, but he was also the chairman of mathematics, astronomy and science department in, um, in an American city college in Westmont. Anyway, Stoner wrote an article and he came up with a new theory. He developed a method of studying odds. He called it the law of compound possibilities. It was a mathematical study of situations and then he would try and work out what are the odds of that situation coming to fruit? What was the law of compound probabilities of that happening? Anyway, Stoner took this law of compound probabilities and put it to his PhD students and they wanted to use it with Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies. He wanted to determine 
What are the odds of one man in history fulfilling all the prophecies recorded in the Bible that point to a Jewish Messiah? When he began his study with his students, he found that there are over 300 different Bible prophecies about Jesus. So he thought, that's way too much work. Don't go down that track. So he then thought to make it easier for himself, he would choose the one that clearly defined. They were black and white. They were very specific. He found 61 of 300 prophecies were black and white. Again, he said to do 300 for one man is too hard. Then he found out of those 61 prophecies, eight prophecies were clearly defined that were totally and utterly beyond any human control. Things like place of birth, things like form of death, things like what's going to happen to him, that relies on the behaviour of others. So no human involvement can have it. These were the eight. Whoops, sorry. Born in Bethlehem, a messenger will prepare the way, enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, be betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver, betrayed by money, remain silent when he's afflicted, die by having. So you guessed it, the PhD students were to work out what's the compound probability of one man doing these eight, fulfilling these eight. One man being born at the right place, at the right time, then the same man dying by crucifixion, a form of death when the prophecy was recorded 800 years before it was even invented. But then add to this the gambling of his clothes, the piercing of his hands and people mocking him at his burial. Professor Stoner and his students worked on this for six months of the compound probability of these eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person. This is his answer. One in 1017. Now you look at that like I did and I thought, huh? If you ever see a number written like that, what does it mean? Well, it's got a 10 and then a small 17. This number represents the number of 10 behind, sorry, the number of zeros behind the number of 10. It looks like this. That is the number that they came up with. Do you know, to illustrate this even more, to bring it home for you even more, as you know, I collect these things. Most of you know I'm a coin collector. Let's say I was to take that many coins, that many $1 coins and spread them out over Victoria. Do you know, I've, I've looked at this. They reckon if I had that many that one with 17 zeros, dollar note, dollar coins, they would almost cover Victoria. Now, let's say that I did this. I laid all these coins over Victoria, and then I come to you and I say, guess what? Today's your lucky day. I'm happy for you to have every one of those coins, every single one of them. But you only have to really do one thing for me. You see... Before I laid out these coins, I marked one of them with an X. One of them. For you to get these coins, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you up in an aeroplane and you can tell me when, where, how high, how low, where you're going to jump out. To get these coins, all you have to do is land on the one with the Red Cross. 
You land on that one and the coins are yours. What chance do you have? You have this. You have a 10 with 17 zeros. Do you know this actually has a number apparently? You have a one in 100 quadrillion chance of landing on that coin. That is the same chance of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies. These scientists who are experts in this thing came up with that number. Yet Jesus fulfilled them all. He didn't just fulfill the eight, he fulfilled the whole 300. So the first point to how did Jesus fulfill the law of the prophets, he fulfilled the law of the Old Testament prophets by coming. Secondly, he died on the cross, which satisfied the demands of the law. The law was designed to be temporary, at least the ritual sacrifices and the ritual things that they did to get closer to God that brought forgiveness. They were meant to be temporary. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament um, pointed to Jesus Christ. That's why it was temporary. Old Testament sacrifices were a way of preparing people for the one true sacrifice, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, satisfying the demands of the law. A third area of fulfilment of the Old Testament law and prophets is this. He perfectly came and kept all its commands. He was born under the law. We're told that in Galatians. He kept the law perfectly, never falling short in any one point. So... My next question, what happens to us now that the law is fulfilled? What was Jesus trying to get us to understand when he taught about himself as the fulfilment of the law and the prophets? Is he saying that they're dead, they're gone? Well, no. I think the first thing we must remember is that Jesus did. He did not come to abolish the old law or he didn't come to give a new law. You know, he was accused many times by many people of trying to disregard the old law. He was accused of trying to bring in new laws. In fact, it was the very um, perception that contributed to his death on the cross. However, Jesus recognised the difficulty in overturning or doing away with the law. So much so, this is what he says in verse 18. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What does this mean? Well, let me help you understand it because Jesus' language is compelling. The smallest letter, well, that's a Hebrew yod, which looks something like an apostrophe in our English thing. And there are about 66,000 of them in the Old Testament. The least stroke, well, that's the Hebrew seraph. That's a tiny extension of some letters that distinguish them from similar letters. And so Jesus is saying this, not one of the 66,000 plus yods or innumerable little sheriffs will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is stating here and teaching the inspiration of the Old Testament is still very much alive. He's not only saying that the Old Testament still contains the truth to be followed, he's saying the scripture cannot be broken until everything is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away, the Holy Scriptures and its teaching will not change. Not one stroke of the pen. 
not until everything is accomplished. Even though many times Jesus was accused of disregarding the Old Testament, he rigorously defended the place of the Old Testament in the life of believers. In fact, time and time again in the Gospels, we see Jesus use and quote from the Old Testament things like temptation, his public ministry, the Last Supper, even had his crucifixion. He always quoted from the Old Testament to answer testing questions. And what's even more interesting, the times he quoted the Old Testament, he would always say, it is written. The verb used in the Greek for it is written is perfect tense. What is perfect tense? Well, it denotes something that is written, and, but it covers the past, present and future. It is perfect tense. And so he's saying it is written, it has always been written, and it always will be written until the end. So I know we're going on a journey, but I've got one more point. What about now the Christians and the law? Where does it sit with us? Jesus' fulfilment of the law and the prophet carries with it some very important points for us here today. Verses 19 and 20 give specific advice as to how we should relate to the law of the Old Testament. Jesus' words have set for us, for us, a supremely radical call. He says this, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one or least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices, teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The lesson for us is this. The Old Testament is still tremendously important. It has not been wiped away. Even though we are under grace, the law still instructs us and gives us guidance of the righteous demands of God. Through the Old Testament, we see how high and how holy God's standards really are. As we see in the Old Testament, we see how far short we fall of that. And that was Wes's point this morning. He said, we have a God that was holy among holy and we can bring nothing to that. That's the God of the Old Testament and the God, I say, of the New Testament. And in the law and the prophets, we see how far we fall. The keeping of the teachings of God as recorded in the Old Testament will make a difference, not only in our lives today, but our internal awards. Following Jesus Christ is not simply following your impulses. It involves knowing what he desires. It involves knowing what his law is. It involves knowing where you want to go. As strange as it may seem, Scripture does seem to teach there are different levels in heaven of where we are. And Jesus seems to say the same thing here. He talks of those who will be least and great in the kingdom of heaven. How does one become great in heaven? By keeping God's commandment and teaching others to do the same. Believers who by the power of the Holy Spirit follow God will be the great ones in heaven. On the other hand, the one who breaks one or teaches others to do the same, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was trying to get them and us to understand that the message of the law and prophets, it's not external. It's not something that's out there. 
It's internal. The law of God is something that is in here. He looks at those listening to what he's saying and he says this, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that may not mean much to us today, but if you were standing there listening to Jesus' words, you would think, I'm doomed. Because this statement was one of the most shocking statements in all of this statement. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were the controlling religious authorities with the, with the people. They determined what was right and they determined what was wrong. They had 613 commands regarding keeping the law. Then they wrote a commentary on these commands and made the binding to people as well. You can see why this statement is shocking. The question would have been raised, how can such righteousness be made? How can a condition like that be put on entering into the kingdom of God? Because they were the ones who were the righteous. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you're not going to get in. I can't help but think it would be like Jesus saying to us today to enter the kingdom of God, the works you do must be greater than Mother Teresa. I don't think any of us can live up to that. So in a way, Jesus seemed to be saying, don't think that I've come to make things easier in regards to the demands of the law. Far from it. In fact, in your righteousness does not succeed the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never make it. What a dilemma. What is the solution? The Pharisees' righteousness was external. It focused on ceremony. It was man-made rules. Actually, were unconscious attempts to reduce the demands of the law and make it more manageable. Those rules stopped them from seeing and meeting the law, piercing their hearts. That's what he means. He said, "What when you follow the law, it's not about following a separate rules, a group of rules out here to look good. It is about doing this. Jesus was demanding a deeper obedience. The righteousness that Christ demands is supremely radical. Don't ever think what you do and how you act doesn't matter. It does. Because the righteousness that Christ demands of us is radical. So much so, we are now being called radical. We have controversial views now. Radical means different. We have different views on certain things. People in churches are now being stood down from jobs because of their radical views. Those views are the law of God, and that's what we stand on. They are measurably higher than any rabbi's understanding of obedience. Jesus is saying you, what you need is deeper than an outward religious action. The true need in your life can only come from being fulfilled by allowing my righteousness, filling my righteousness in your life. So where does this all fit? Grace or law? Where does this all fit in our day-to-day lives with things like checks and money and car parts? So what? Where does this all fit? Well, what I want to share with you is, in closing is my personal thoughts. Dangerous, I know. This isn't in any book. But personally, and I'm happy to discuss this, I still say the law of God still plays a vital part in the life of a Christian. In fact, the law of God can only play a part in the life of a Christian. 
we live in Australia. We come under Australian rules. Imagine if the Chinese government tried to come in here and try to install their beliefs, their understandings of what happened in their country onto us. We tell them, get lost. We don't do that. We're Australian. No non-Christian needs to follow the laws of God because they're not in the relationship. I mean, Jesus says that there's nothing is removed from the law until it's accomplished. That is for us as believers because we are the ones who are in his kingdom. We are the ones who follow his rules. So surely it must still play a part in the role of a Christian today. Most times in scripture, we are referred to as being free from the law. It is to do with salvation. And that is true. Jesus has fulfilled the law so that we have salvation. We have been made right with God. If we try to change that, if we try to say to someone, if you want to be right with God, you need to do A, B, C to be changed, then you have added to that. Galatians 5 says this, we're trying to find father with God by following one part of the law, then you must put yourself under the whole law. If you're going to try and find righteousness by obeying one part, then you've got to go back and obey the whole lot. Yet, the law should still be a part of the Christian life. I don't believe Jesus' idea is that we study and know the law in and out. I don't believe Jesus is interested in us becoming experts in following the law. I don't believe this. My whole message when it comes to the law or grace versus law, we are not meant to live in the law. We are free from the law, but the law is meant to live in us. The law of God is meant to live in us. The law is meant to be alive in us. His law of how much he is holy and we are not. His law of how we are to live our lives and follow what he chooses for people to live the way he did, both in the Old Testament and the New. That is to be alive in us. It's not there to change anyone, only us. The law is to be alive in us. Jesus came not only to be the fulfilment of the law and the prophets, he came so that you may find fulfilment in him. Jesus was not challenging the law and attempting to change it. He was simply correcting the misunderstanding of what God had, what the people believed. His goal was not to give information to people's minds. His goal was about transformation of people's lives. He wanted to them to live righteously, so righteously that their righteousness was above the Pharisees, which was all about external. He wanted his righteousness to come in and be a part of them. He wanted his grace and law to come and be a part of them. Jesus didn't come to give a new law or new prophecies. Jesus came to give us a new nature. Jesus came to make us a whole new being. That's what we celebrated last week with those baptisms. Once Jesus enters and becomes Lord of our life, I believe we'll never, ever be the same person again. Following, obeying the laws of God brings us closer to God, not further away. When his law is alive in us, we become more like his son that radical life-changing holiness is what the law is all about. So that's the law versus grace in my understanding of our day-to-day living as Christians. It should affect the way what we do. We are still under the law of God because we are his, in his kingdom. If, he has, if we're in his kingdom, he's our king. Over the next few weeks... 
I want to look at it series. How does this law and grace work itself out in the life of the church and the life of believers who come together and who may be very, very different? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we just thank you for the awesomeness of your word and the power of your word. And um, Father, I really pray that um, I know what I've said today is quite confusing and I even find it hard to get my head around it. But Lord, I pray that um, confusion will be gone um, from people, clear their minds, but only have them hear what you want them to hear. Only challenge them on what you want to challenge them on. And I thank you for your abundant grace. I thank you that your grace covers us regardless of what we do. Your grace does save us. Even if I never gave that check back, even if I took that car park, I am still a child of God because of what you have done for me. But Father, help us to understand what it means to live for you. Help us to understand what it means to have your law living in us so we can live it out. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.